Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Looking at pornography teaches us, because again, the neuroplasticity is anything I'm exposing my brain to consistently, frequently, over a long duration, physically changes the structure of my brain, these neural pathways. It redirects these neural pathways. 100% of the studies into the impact of pornography are pointing to the negative, devastating impact on young men, on young women, and on couples. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Marianne Orlandi, Associate Director of the Austin Institute, and I am thrilled for today's episode. The reason being that I spend a lot of time thinking about this particular issue that we will discuss today, reading about it, learning more, and now we're having our first conversation on the topic, which is pornography. Another reason why I'm thrilled to record this episode is that to start off, we have a guest who has insight on what pornography really is in 2021 and what it is actually doing to children, spouses, and I would say anyone we're meeting actually, no matter what sex. So our guest is Dr. Jimmy Myers, founder, owner, and CEO of the Timothy Center. Good morning, Dr. Myers. Good morning. So as I said, you can provide a very accurate account of what pornography is based on the actual work that you do at the Timothy mm-hmm. Center. So would you mind telling our audience more about the center and what you do there? Absolutely. The Timothy Center is a faith-based counseling center. And this year we celebrate our 20th anniversary. And in, within the last five years, things have just kind of gone crazy. We kind of moved from kind of a mom and pop which is where most counseling facilities are, to more of a facilities model and got Joint Commission certified. And now that we're able to take insurance and because of that, I mean, you know, counselors that take insurance are rare, but faith-based counselors that take insurance are even rarer. And we also added about two years ago, psychiatric services that are faith-based and take insurance And so because of the rarity of all this, we've gone within the past three to four years from seeing about 70 people a week with four or five counselors. We now have 30 therapists and we're seeing about 450 people a week. And about three years ago, we started uh, sexual addiction recovery at the Timothy Center. And we now have five what are called CSAT, certified sexual addiction therapists. And we may be, I think we are probably the largest sexual addiction program in Central Texas. Yeah, so you're based in Texas and you treat sexual addiction on top of all the other addictions that you've been treating also Mm -hmm. in the past. So now, always for our audience, because I've already had the pleasure to talk to you at length about these topics, but would you tell us something more about your background and education? Because I think that that makes your expertise also peculiar and even more interesting. Well, really, I was a youth minister for 20 years before doing this. And so when we started the Timothy Center, which is actually, people, people wonder if I had a child that passed away named Timothy, or since my name is Jimmy, people call me Timmy quite frequently, it's kind of where the Timothy Center comes from, but it comes from 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one look down on you because you're young. 
and it really was an outgrowth of my 20 years of working with teenagers. And so we started out working almost exclusively with teenagers, and then it grew to, of course, adults and couples and everything else. But we're still sort of known in the Austin area as the teenager place. And so my son and I, who's he's my co-owner, we saw pornography all the time in dealing with kids, specifically boys, but girls as well. It was interesting because when we had our podcast, we were approached by an acquisitions editor from a major Christian publishing house. And they said, no, what are you seeing? You know, what's the thing you're seeing? Walk through the door of your office. And Josh and I both just said, pornography. And she literally laughed. She just said, there, this was about three years ago, maybe four. She said, there's no way. You know, there's no Christian publisher that's going to publish a book about pornography. And there's no Christian woman who are the only people who buy Christian books are going to walk out of a Christian bookstore with a book about pornography. So you got to give me something else. And we just saw sex addiction, pornography addiction, because porn is just the marijuana of sexual addiction. It's the gateway drug into other things. We just saw this coming tsunami. And sadly, very, very sadly, you know, that turned out to be true because now it is just ubiquitous. It is universal. I was just reminded just this morning, there was a study done in England and they wanted to begin their study of the effects of pornography on young men by finding a control group of 20-somethings that have never seen pornography and they literally could not find. They couldn't do their study because they couldn't find a control group that had not extensively viewed pornography. So that's just kind of where we are. And we're backpedaling. And I think as a culture, the whole idea of pornography, you know, was sort of the Voldemort of issues, especially in the Christian community. It's that which must not be named. And we went from churches that would just absolutely not talk about this at all, even though 60% of the men in their church were looking at it regularly. Yeah. And before we get into numbers and, you know, what we're actually talking, could you, because I know that part of our audience, especially for our podcast, is young people, young students, young mm -hmm. professionals, and they are, I'm sure that they know exactly what it is that we're talking about. At the same time, mm -hmm. I'm quite sure that anyone who is 40 or a little older than 40 years old thinks that we're talking about uh, someone just looking at some images online. Yes. That's about it. Ten so House Magazine. You, right. Could you please explain to the parents and also to the young adults that think they yes, know yes, yes. it all, what we're talking about? Yes. If you're an older parent, like you say, you know, over 40, what you think of as pornography is Playboy or Penthouse or something like that or a stag film. And... What we're seeing today, I mean, it makes Penthouse Magazine look like Sunday school literature. What we're seeing in high-speed internet pornography, we've never seen before. Everyone says, oh, well, you know, boys will be boys. You know, pornography has always been around. This has never been around. That you have access to nonstop, never-ending, supernatural or, you know, supernormal stimuli that triggers the, you know, the Delta Fos B, then triggers the neuroplasticity for physical brain change. We've never seen this before. And finally, you know, the more we're so blessed about, you know, neurobiology and the more we know, the more 
we're now understanding how this works. And the more we know, the studies now are just becoming mountainous. And 100% of the studies into the impact of pornography, 100% are pointing to the negative, devastating impact on young men, on young women, and on couples. Yeah, because you mentioned neuroplasticity, this is probably something I wanted to mention a little later, but let's talk about that, about what contemporary pornography is doing to people's brain. Because I found this quote, says that it was a study in 2002, human brain mapping, demonstrating that while many men and women have similar regions of the brain activated during the viewing of porn, only in men there is a significant activation of the thalamus and hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is responsible for primary drives for food, water, and sex, as well as motivation and hormonal control. Mm -hmm. This means when men get turned on by porn, their bodies experience sexual arousal, not just as a desire, but as a survival need. Yes. Right. So I think that there is something interesting to say that because we're talking about pornography being used by both men and women, but there is something to be said about also the different consequences of watching porn for both and what they experience. You know, especially in the faith community, it's almost like, well, it's a fair light. You know, I'm not having sex with my girlfriend, a Christian teenager would say. Yeah, I'm just looking at porn. And therefore, you know, hey, I can't be held accountable. <laughs> it's kind of like I had a young man in my office. He said, yeah, I had sex with my girlfriend, but I wore a condom, so I didn't technically touch her. And I said, okay, I, I just had to give him a slow clap. Yeah, it was a, right. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But it's that idea of I'm getting by with something without technically doing anything wrong. And what we're finding, the research now just mounting, is the physiological brain changes that stem from this constant, never-ending source of supernormal sexual stimuli. And it goes back to the, I think it was in the 50s, where supernormal stimuli, Turgeon, I forget the guy's name, but he came up with this idea of supernormal stimuli, and it was with the butterflies. It's a pretty famous study that he was looking at instinctual reactions to different things across different species. And so he took these, I believe they were monarch butterflies, and he created females out of cardboard, and he made them slightly larger and the color scheme slightly more vibrant. And when they released all the butterflies back into the cage, all the males went immediately trying to mate with the cardboard females, with the actual females right there. And this became known as supernormal stimuli. And this became true across species to include humans, that we desire that. There was a thing called the Coolidge effect. I think it was in the early 2010, 11, something like that, where they had a male rat and they put in a female rat in heat and he copulated numerous times until he just collapsed on the floor. And so the female was still there. He was laying on the floor completely uninterested until they immediately took that female out, put in a new, different female. He immediately pops up and begins copulating again until he collapses again, immediately out, new female in, he ups, he's up. And they had to stop because they just thought he was going to die. So here was a male that there was a female in heat right next to him, and he was completely uninterested until a new female was introduced. 
And so when you look at the supernormal stimuli, this craving for something new, something different, something taboo, now all of a sudden, as I'm saying this, probably there are guys by the gazillions that are going, oh, oh, okay. You know, that's why all of a sudden I'm looking at fetishes. I go for what is different, what is unique. And they keep pushing the boundaries into all these different paraphilias because they are looking for something super normal, which is why we tell the guys in our sexual addiction program, your wife has nothing to do with it whatsoever. Now you'll tell yourself your grievance story is I'm doing this because she's not meeting my sexual needs. But that is absolutely untrue. So from the female perspective, what comes to mind, there are two sad things. The first one being that, you know, you might think your boyfriend is very respectful. The reality being is not interested in you because his brain has been shaped and reshaped by other images. And the other sad thing could be, you know, for a spouse instead to think, oh, the problem is on me because I gained some weight or I'm not attractive. Exactly. And again, the problem is not with you. The problem is. But now... There is one thing, you know, going on your website and also talking to you, I know that you like to talk about hope. And that was one of the first questions I had for you, because we know that with alcoholism, person cannot drink anymore after an addiction. And But with a sex addiction, that's not the case. Correct. So could you tell us the difference a little? It's very interesting. Yeah, because when you're dealing with a process addiction like sex or food or gambling, as opposed to a chemical addiction. With alcohol, cocaine, it's just like, okay, I don't touch those chemicals for the rest of my life. Done, game over. Well, the goal for sex addiction recovery is not to never have sex again. That can't be the goal. And so what we shoot for is what you're giving up is selfish sex. Because the average age of first exposure to internet pornography is between seven and eight and 10 years old. And most of that is accidental or a friend on a bus, you know, on their cell phones. Speaking of which, just a little side note, a year or so ago, there was an editorial in the Dallas Morning News from a mother. And the headline was, as long as sixth graders can access pornography on their cell phones, then school itself becomes a toxic environment. And her daughter had two sixth grade boys come up and show her rape porn on their phone and said, look how this girl is liking this. This is what we're going to do to you. And you're going to like this too. So you don't get boys there by the sixth grade because they were exposed to porn the week before. That's because they had been viewing pornography probably at 12 years old, sixth grade, you know, probably for a couple of years, two or three years at that. And so when you have that kind of early exposure, and then it's pretty, for the most part, nonstop. Virtually every guy that's in our sexual addiction program, and again, most have moved well beyond pornography. They all start with pornography, but very few, if any, ever end with pornography. At some point, you have to jump the shark. What comes afterwards? And then I want to go back to before. But Well, you've, the research is very interesting because you would think that the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the reward center, you would think, well, man, you're feeding it all of this supernormal stimuli that's just popping the dopamine in. But what you find is with the saturation of dopamine, there becomes a deadening of the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the reward center. 
And if you want to see the reward center, it's kind of the accelerator. So that's that primitive brain that everyone talks about. And so this is, I'm going to eat fatty foods and I'm going to, you know, all these things that primitive and it's, I'm going to have sex with as many young women as I can so I can pass my genes to the next generation. That's the reward center, the primitive brain. But human beings have a prefrontal cortex that is the breaking system. So we, yeah, we have this primitive brain, part of our brain telling us to go do these things, but we have a prefrontal cortex that says, it's really not in your best interest. And what we find with more and more saturation of dopamine from this constant input of supernormal stimuli, that the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the, the reward center weakens and numbs. And it's like the brakes go out. Every wife in our program will say, why? Why do you keep doing this? Why can't you stop? And every guy says, why can't I stop? I want to stop. This is not who I am. Why can't I stop? That's why. Because physiologically, this is the thing. It's physical changes to your brain has all but severed the braking system from the accelerator. There was a video of a porn addict looking at pornography and, and they were doing a live MRI on his brain. And they showed it and you saw the blood circulating in his brain. And then up in the right-hand corner, they showed that he began looking at pornography. And pretty immediately, you saw this. You saw the blood being directed out of the prefrontal cortex and into the reward center. You saw it. So it was like you saw this guy take his foot off the brake and apply it to the accelerator. And so taking off that brake, what does it lead to? Is it voyeurism and then a lot of sexual partners? Is that the desire? Oh, absolutely. And it's so far ranging. It has so much to do with their upbringing. You know, what's interesting is because sex is a process addiction and it's part of a very important survival instinct within us, alcoholism, but food is and sex is. And so the level of addiction is so much higher, say, in sex addiction than in a chemical addiction where only about 10% of people actually get hooked. If you go down to any frat house at UT, if you looked at them, you would say, well, they're all alcoholics because they're all binge drinking and they're, you know, they're drinking all the time. And you don't know whether they are or not until they leave and try to stop doing that. And really only about 10% of them remain addicted to alcohol. But then you have the same, you look at a frat house and you'd say, well, they all qualify for sex addiction. They're all looking at porn and they're all trying to bed as many women as possible. And they, you know, they have drinking games about it, but much higher level of those remain addicted because sex addiction strives at a core instinctual level, almost a genetic level inside of us. And so, again, they're not going to know until they try to stop whether they're addicted or not. So could we say, what is the difference? Because I see a lot of numbers, you know, of what is the use in the last week? What is the use in the last month? I think it was 2000, maybe 2014, I don't know when I read that, that it was nationwide about 12 million people in the U.S. are afflicted with sex addiction. But what is the difference between porn use and sex addiction? There's a guy named Rob Weiss, who's a, one of the, the leading voices you know, for sex addiction in the United States. And he defined addiction as when you can stop, you don't want to. And when you want to stop, you can't. 
And I've said, that's, that's kind of the most beautiful, simplistic, that's exactly what addiction is. And when another thing about the guys at the Fiji house is because they're not violating their mores. They're, you know, they're not trying not to be this way. They're living their best life. They think they have died and gone to heaven at this target-rich environment of sex-crazed young ladies. So it's not until they go, well, this is not who I want to be. And they want to be different. I can't keep doing this. I want to have a long-term relationship with a loving woman. And I want to have a family. And they can't stop. We had, and that's almost. So, are you saying that? Sorry, are you saying that the students, you know, that live this way, they actually somehow they cannot have a sense of where they are with it, as while they're doing it, they will only discover and maybe. But what are the hints? Like, could it be like I'm just guessing, like a lack of romantic emotions, or like the inability to see the beauty in a normal woman, like. Could oh, without be? question. Mm. Yes. And some alarming, I want to say it's something like 60, 70% of teenagers said that they used pornography for sex education, which is understandable, you know, from an adolescent brain point of view. But pornography is the antithesis of what actual sex is. Looking at pornography teaches us, because again, the neuroplasticity is. Anything I'm exposing my brain to consistently, frequently, over a long duration, physically changes the structure of my brain, these neural pathways. It redirects these neural pathways. And so then you got to say, okay, well, what are you exposing your brain to from age eight, say, through age 25? Well, that woman, there's another thing inside of us called mirror neurons. If you ever wondered why you watched the movie The Notebook and you cried, when actually there was nothing wrong going on in your life. It's because of mirror neurons. What we're seeing, we interpret inside of us as that's happening to us. If guys who are listening, if you've ever wondered why you're sitting in a room with just a plastic box and you get an erection and you ejaculate, it's because your brain is telling you that's happening to you. And so porn teaches us that all women want you. And you get to have sex with the type of girl doing the type of sex acts that you find the most erotic. And it pays off. You always say porn is perfect because it's the exact type of woman, the exact type of sexual activity, and it pays off with an orgasm every single time. And when you bring an actual human being into the room, all that goes down on the crapper. Because now all of a sudden, no, go ahead. We have the, if you want to make, I think that that's where you're going, the, I don't know if, if anyone turns on the radio, there are a lot of ads about erectile dysfunction and it's increasing among young people. So Yes. Yes. When young men just go, well, well, why do I need to stop? And well, you want your penis to work, don't you? Because again, the research is just stacking up and I'm not looking at the study, so bear with me. But prior to 2010, the percentage of young men under 30 who were seeking medical help for erectile dysfunction was statistically zero. I mean, of course, there were anecdotally, but statistically it was zero. Now, upwards of 25% of all men seeking medical help for erectile dysfunction are under 30, a quarter. 
since 2010. Well, then someone's got to, well, what in the world happened in 2010? Well, for the most part, it was the saturation of high-speed internet porn. There is no other indicator other than that. And again, that surge of dopamine, and, and which then triggers the delta phosphate in your brain, takes more and it takes more and it takes more until an actual human being doesn't do it. No, that's not the way I like it. No, she doesn't look right. Uh, what do you mean you don't like this? I've seen, gosh, I had a couple in my office and, and they both came in mad. And she sat down and she said, well, tell him. And, and so the husband said, okay, I will. I said, he said, she will not have anal sex with me. Women love it. I mean, I know women love it. He says this because he's looked at pornography for decades. That taught him that women love anal sex. And I said, well, okay, I get what you're saying, but y'all could go down and get a sex toy and sir, we'll start with you. And if you really love it, uh, then maybe you could talk to your wife. But again, his well, brain was so Dr. Myers, I love you're very direct. I mean, the, the title of this <laughs> episode is what we can't not talk about. You're really direct. I, I hope we don't need to. Well, if we're, if we're going to talk about it. No, we need to talk about this thing. I mean, this is the reality. And what, what terrifies me is that this woman had a sense that that was not appropriate and was not an appropriate request. But if as a teenager, I'm growing up in an environment where everyone does it, everyone watches it, everyone thinks this is okay because this is the way we're educated to sex, then the terrifying thing is that they will not say this oh, is wrong. Yes. Correct? So maybe- Oh, yeah. And again, you've got these young boys, over 80% of all pornographic videos contain violence toward the woman, whether that is just slapping, spitting, manhandling, choking, all of that then in that young boy has been normalized until when he gets up and he gets into a long-term relationship. Well, that's what sex is because again, they use pornography to teach him. And for whatever reason, he was taught that women love when guys ejaculate on their face. Don't know why, but apparently he's seen thousands of videos and women apparently love this. And then you've got this young girl he's going to marry going, what in the what? You want the what? Not only no, but heck no. And then he's then saying, well, gosh, how did I end up with the one prude on the planet? Because I know women love this. I've seen thousands of them and they love this. So it sets up this very perverted, unrealistic expectation. Or it gets even sadder because 14-year-old girls were surveyed as to why they look at pornography. And the number one thing is, is because we need to know what's going to be expected of us. Yeah, that, that was my guess that the number of women watching porn is increasing. But the guess was because of also the reaction that of the neuro, the way our brains work, that it's more to understand what men want. And then when that young lady doesn't do what he was taught, what sex is, because again, pornography is just performance oriented. You might as well have, you know, Olympic judges holding up. That's all it is. It's just performance. There is no courtship. There's no romance. There's no touching. There's no intimacy. There's no giving and taking and just relishing some, none of that exists in pornography, which is again, what's in pornography 
is the anti-intercourse. That is not what sex is. And yet we have now a couple of generations that are being raised that that's what sex is. And which is why the use of pornography by a husband or within a marriage is the single largest indicator of the breakup of a marriage. I just wanted to say, I know that the content we're, you know, it's terrifying what we're saying, but because of the numbers, you know, I'm imagining, well, if someone listening to us has four children, the likelihood that at least one over those four is using pornography and to a risky, at a risky level is high. And then, and I know that based also on your practice is faith-based. So you see a lot of mm -hmm. Christians, I'm assuming. Yeah. And, and so mm -hmm. you have a sense of the fact that this thing is not... <laughs> You know, there is no safe space, let's say. Absolutely. And again, the research also is very clear that sex addiction, especially more than alcohol or cocaine or whatever, but sex addiction carries with it a very high level of shame. And sex addiction is very shame driven. You're going against your own moral code. You're going against, you know, who you want to be. And again, you find that you're unable to stop doing it. And there's this enormous amount of shame involved. And so you have this shame and this self-loathing. Well, the only thing that's going to make you feel any better, you know, is to get a little more dopamine. And so this whole addictive cycle, you know, continues. And that's why you see sex addiction so prevalent, especially within the, the Christian community, is because these guys are feeling... I, I mean, an atheist is going to feel bad, but a believer, you know, the word Christian is Christ-like, and what they know that they have this secret life, this compartmentalized existence, so they have this very outwardly good person persona, but they have this inward secret, very shameful persona that the only thing that allows them to go on is to keep feeding it this dopamine-inducing behavior, but then it just deepens deepens the hole that they're in. Yeah, one thing that makes me, you know, I think that we should say is based even just on what you said in this 20 minutes together, because it is the brain that is being affected, maybe one way to feel a little less, you know, shame for this is, well, you enter this probably, you know, unwillingly when you were eight years old, you didn't even know what you were mm -hmm. doing. And then the yep. process has just been, you know, taking over you. Yes. in a way that is not totally your responsibility. And so one of the reasons to have you, you know, because we have sociologists, professors that can share a lot of data and analysis on the thing, but one of the reasons to start off this, I think it can be a series where of episodes where we can talk about this issue. Mm -hmm. But to start with you is that you have a counseling center. And again, you always say that there is hope because brains can change. And so I would like to, maybe spend a little time now to think about and talk about what can be done to stop, what can be done as a single teenager, what can be done from the parents' perspective, and what can be done as couples. So the good news, you know, we talk about neuroplasticity and this miraculous aspect of how the brain operates and how neuroplasticity is involved in the development of addiction. But the good news about neuroplasticity is it can be used in a healthy, positive direction. The good news is that, again, studies are indicating that the brain can change again. 
And it's not simply a cessation of the behavior, which is critical, but it is, it's doing the work, the undergirding, the root system that feeds the addiction, which for a lot of what's called traditional sex addicts, that is childhood trauma. There's a lot of different types of abuse or neglect or unintentional neglect even that really prepare the brain for when they first get exposed. So, But that's no more the case, right? Well, we now have traditional sex addicts and we have contemporary sex addicts. And, you know, we talk a lot about consistent, frequent duration, anything that your brain is exposed to. But alongside that is intensity. If you experience even one event of adequate intensity, then the brain change is sudden. And you see that with, you know, someone could be sexually molested as a nine-year-old and just one time. So not multiple times over the long duration, just once. But the intensity of that on that young brain is enough for sudden brain change. And what we're finding from high-speed internet porn is high-speed internet porn in and of itself is of sufficient intensity to create brain change with no prior trauma, no prior sexual molestation. You could have attachment styles that are secure from growing up. And yet the intensity of just that experience is enough to begin the process of brain change and addiction. So, yeah. So back to the hope in this, the brain can change so it can change back. Yes. With, you know, again, you, we're now going to expose your brain consistently, frequently over a long duration to what is good and what is right and what is true and what is healthy. And what is again, beautiful. What is beautiful. So how do you, know, you do that? Will, how'd you, how'd you actually do that? Well, and it's true of, you know, Patrick Carnes is the guy who really started all of this. And his whole task model of coming up out of addiction, you know, with task number one being, you know, coming up out of denial, it's very laborious. There's a lot of work to it. And in our program, we ask guys to commit to two years of working through all this. Because again, it's not just you've stopped. It's I'm understanding what it was about me that allowed this to grow in me. And again, once that, let's say you've grown up, you've gotten married, again, she's your grievance story. She, you tell yourself she's not meeting your sexual needs. That's why you're back looking at porn. And there comes a time when going to this fetish, to that fetish, just doesn't do it anymore. And you need a real live and in vivo experience. And that's when you go to a massage parlor or, you know, have the first of what would be a multitude of affairs because just what now porn will always be there. It's like for the alcoholic, you know, there's always going to be beer, but to get that same level of excitement, then you've got to have something else. One other thing that's not only interesting, it's grotesque and terrifying is that since we crawl out of caves, Pedophiles, people who are aroused by children, have always been a minuscule, you know, percentage of the population, just tiny, microscopic. And most of it was because of severe abuse in their own childhood and things of that nature. We're seeing an explosion in guys that are 
now viewing child pornography only because they're looking what's taboo, what is different, what is this super normal stimuli? And it just leads them down this toxic rabbit hole until at some point. You I remember you telling me what are the most searched videos on Pornhub and this kind oh, yeah. of website that are just... Yeah, on Pornhub last year was, again, off the top of my head, but it's like incest, mother-son. These were the most searched terms. And again, if we're talking about consistent frequency, what is that? What is that teaching that little boy? And again, they end up with like almost what would be the ultimate taboo of being you know, child pornography. So we're high-speed internet pornography is creating pedophiles that didn't and would never have existed before. I mean, I have to assume that COVID, you know, we had an episode where we said COVID didn't actually harm the family. I'm afraid COVID did harm our brains in that sense because I read something about the number of hours of porn that have been streamed. Oh, yes. During the quarantine and the lockdown and not to make it, I think we did say the truth and we said how horrifying this all is. But again, I want to go back to what should the young person listening do and think to get out of this? Yeah, uh, so the absolutely. first thing I think is, you know, what you just said, that it is possible. And, you know, practical things also for parents to realize whether there is a problem in the house or not. And for couples. For, yeah, for kids, for teenagers, this is a parent thing. We've got to have parents that are engaged who realize you can't solve a problem you don't realize you have. The problem is, you know, you have over half of the fathers who are looking at porn themselves. No wonder they're going to minimize this. And well, honey, we can't get that blocking software, you know, for my business, blah, blah, blah. And it's just because the dads are looking at it. It really begins with parents. And there should be for any dad, husband, for any couple, there should be no device that can access the internet that does not have blocking filtering software. That's just, that is a no-brainer. Just recently, an Austin startup called Canopy yes. is now available. They've just gone live with it. And it's phenomenal. It's unbelievable. So good. You know, finally, technology has caught up to the problem. So for teenagers and for kids, it starts with parents but again, parents have not wanted to think about this, talk about this, acknowledge this. Not my son. I love that there was a study a couple, two, three years ago. 75% of the parents said, my child's not looking at it. And I think it was something like 60% of the kids were looking at it. So most parents are out to lunch on this. And to their children's demise, they're out to lunch. So for kids, it's a parent issue. For young adults, it's hard it's, you know, without major consequences, you know, they say about an alcoholic, they've got to be in an alley face down in a pool mm-hmm. of their own vomit before they're going to turn around. There's got to be some major consequence. And for the most part, young men don't have that. Or don't see um, how bad that's going to be in their future sure. relationships, right? Oh, absolutely. And it's so hard to stop that unless you have the sort of Damocles hanging over your head, you're not going to do it. Which is why, you know, older guys who are married with children, I mean, they have divorce, permanently separated from their children. They have huge consequences. And that tends to be the motivator that, okay, I'm going to do this hard work to change my brain. 
Would you agree that one of also the most practical suggestions for girls and boys that are actually dating is talk about this. Talk about this as soon as possible. Don't wait. I have the impression that there is this. I remember when we talked previously that you mentioned the taboo mentality of many parents that don't talk about sex, but this can be replicated within the relationship with the girl not wanting to ask question, you know, how mm-hmm. to deal with that. So would you say that that helps? And do you think that the guy should talk about this to the girlfriend? Not, is it a private um, issue? Is it a couple issue? We have to talk about it. Because again, you can't solve a problem that you don't acknowledge that you have. Being able to address the issue drag it out of the closet, drag it from the shadows into the light is critical to, you know, for a young man who really wants to stop. Again, we're motivated by reward and consequence. And all these young men are doing this cost benefits analysis is me looking at porn daily. Is this benefiting me more than I think it's costing me? Then I'm going to keep doing it. But as soon as it starts costing me, I'm going to stop, which is we kind of back to the erectile dysfunction, that tends to be the one symptom, the one consequence that gets their attention. Because mm-hmm. it's just like, eh, well, you know, hey, no big deal, no big deal. Whoa, big deal. Well, I would be curious to know what the contraindication, because I was just listening to the radio and then there are all these ads about the spills that you can take. But I'm, you know, okay, you are generating the problem of erectile dysfunction then you're curing it with these pills. But I'm wondering what other effects these pills can have because I would be surprised if they were like risk-free, right? For its long-term use, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And with us, probably the most glaring was we had a 15-year-old that could not have sex with his girlfriend without closing his eyes and thinking about pornographic images that he had seen at age 15. So you can imagine how many hundreds of hours of porn videos, hardcore porn videos that 15-year-old had seen in his life in order for physiologically, you know, his arousal system not to operate. It's mind-numbing. Yeah, and again, if they come to you and you've seen them at the Timothy Center, these are kids that come probably from a good family. Most of them, yes. Yeah, so that that's not an indicator. This is everybody. One last thing that I would like to, you know, hear your opinion on. There was an article that Professor Mark Regneris wrote in 2014. It was published in First Things. I'm going to provide the link here. Called it the pornography double bind. And his argument mm-hmm. was, well, most of men use pornography. I've used some pornography. So the fact that there are some women that say, well, this is a no, no, no for me. You know, if that's the mm-hmm. case, then... I'm not going to date this guy. He was saying, well, careful what you say, because mm-hmm. there is it's probably something you need to address and it cannot just be a no, 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 because otherwise marriage is literally not going to mm-hmm. increase the rates. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Yes. And I would say that there is not a young lady alive today that will date, be engaged to or marry a young man that has not seen thousands of hours of hardcore porn. Wow. Um, that's, and, and I mean, I think I agree with you and I have this conversation very often with my friends, but 
I mean, you said thousands of hours. You say not just being exposed once. Okay. Oh, without question. Yeah, I believe, see, in this, I think that many people will not believe in your words. I do believe in your expertise because I know that you speak from the point of view of someone who's working. The only person that are believing me are the guys that are looking at thousands of hours. Yeah, Um, and probably, yeah, exactly. And so to them, I will provide on the podcast, we'll provide the links to your center for sure. But also, would you have any link things videos or books or movies or talks would, that you would recommend that we yes. should and so and this one's very easy it's called brainheartworld.org and there are it's put out by Fight the New Drug which is a fantastic organization that just puts the research out i mean they are your one stop shop for all the most current research on pornography and its impact And they put together three about 30-minute videos, one on how it impacts the brain, two on how it impacts relationships, and then third, how it just impacts the world and even looks within its impact on people within the porn industry. And it's wonderful. What they're communicating is so good. They did it. So don't think it's juvenile. They did it so that even an eighth grader could understand mirror neurons and neuroplasticity. And so don't be put off by, you know, them putting it in such a way that a younger person could understand it because what they're saying is dead on accurate and it's vital information. So would you also recommend parents with young children to watch it? And if so, how young? Like when is it an appropriate moment to watch something like that? You know, age appropriate for sure in this case, as you've mentioned. Yeah. You know, if we're saying eight to 10 years old, and I would say probably eight to 10 years old is for young children, there's a book called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, which you can use with smaller children so they understand what to do if they accidentally or if someone else, and it gives them something so that they know that the first thing they're supposed to do is tell mom and dad and mom and dad know what they're going to do. if they. So it's like, we got a plan for when this is going to happen. Because by the way, it is going to happen. Your child is going to be exposed to this. It's just, are we going to prepare them for that moment? Or are we going to be shocked and judgmental and critical when that moment occurs? Dr. Myers, I could continue the conversation with you for hours and hours, but I know that you are very busy because as you said, the number of clients you have at the Timothy Center keeps increasing. And you, again, you do a great work there. So I'm not going to keep you from continuing your work today. I just want to thank you very much. And I hope we'll have you again. Thank I would you. love that. Thank you. We'll plan on having you again and perhaps even live. And again, this is a message of reality, a reality check and something we cannot we can't not talk about, but yeah. it's also a message of hope that your brain is, you know, you can change it. It's your brain. So just decide yeah. what to do with it. Thank you, Dr. Myers. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.